Thank you, Mark. Well, it's been fantastic to worship together as a family this morning, and it's clearly clear that God's here and his Holy Spirit's here and just wanting to do something amongst us, showing us something of his power. So I think it's very appropriate that we'll make some space for that towards the end of the meeting, just to come meet with God and just drink of his spirit and what he's doing. So it's just extremely thrilling. Now, we're going to be looking at the Word together. If you've not got a Bible with you and you'd like to follow with one, we've got some that we can give out to you. So if you just want to raise your hand, uh, we'll have some Bibles passed around that you can use to follow them. So we'll just allow them to do that now. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. Which you've got in front of you, so you can flick there in Ephesians chapter 4. And just as we're doing that, as we're, Bibles are being handed out and you're finding your place, a little bit of background to this book. It's a great book, Ephesians. To me, I always think of it a little bit like uh, those multivitamin tablets that you can get, that they've got about a thousand times of everything you could ever need for about a year in them. This book's a bit like that because there's just so much good stuff uh, in breadth and depth uh, in such a short letter, really. Uh, that you only need to dip into it a little bit, and you'll find a lot there that will do you a lot of good. Um, It's a book written by Paul. He was most likely imprisoned in Rome at the time when he wrote it, and it's quite unique uh, in its tone in that, as we read in many of Paul's letters, they are perhaps um, directed to a specific recipient. It's likely that this was something that was sent as more of a circular um, around Ephesus, the place where these people were, um, because he did visit there, but uh, he wouldn't have met everybody. And often, I don't know, I remember being a student uh, in Norwich, and it was a central city, but there wasn't much else for a long way around it. So lots of people would commute in and were coming out of the city. And I, get, I imagine that it was a similar picture here, that this letter would be distributed around, and there was those who Paul didn't meet there on his visit, and they would have come in and be able to heard, and this would have been passed around. So... It's, it's got a broad kind of application, a broad um, direction to its tone, and, and that's quite unique about this letter. And we're going to be jumping in at Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and the danger of this is that this being a one-off sermon, we're just coming in halfway through what Paul's doing. Um, and Paul has this tendency to kind of build arguments on top of each other, one on top of the other, never-ending sometimes. Um, and the danger is it can be a little bit like if you were to overhear a conversation halfway through, perhaps on the bus or something, and just come in halfway to that conversation, uh, there's a danger that you can perhaps get the wrong end of the stick and uh, miss the point of what's being said uh, entirely. So just by way of context and build up to what's been happening here, um, what has been happening at the start of chapter 4, and we're going to come in some way halfway through, is that Paul has been talking about the importance of God's people and his church being joined together in unity and that that involves things like being gentle and patient and bearing with one another. Um, There's some very practical instructions. We often refer to them as the Ephesians 4 ministries and it just goes into details about practical roles within the church. But the heart of all of this, the heart of what's been going on here is that uh, um, that Paul is wanting to paint Um, uh, just a multicolored picture, a wonderful painting of what God's church is to be like. Uh, One that isn't immature or easily swayed or led astray, but is healthy and solid, all with every member contributing, building one another up, and strengthening each other. So 
Paul has been just painting this wonderful picture of what God wants his church to be like um, and the characteristics of it. And it's in light of this dynamic and vibrant picture that Paul's been painting that we now step in uh, to where we're at. And he begins to just contrast um, something of this wonderful life in the church with the kind of lives and evil things that people are pursuing outside of the church. So we're going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through to 32, and then we're just going to skip into two verses in chapter 5 also. So I hope you can just stay with me. So Ephesians 4 and verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and it may, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then just skipping over to chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, do not und- and, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay. So we start off here at the, the, the beginning of this section in verse 20 and 21, that Paul is reminding the believers um, in how it was that they first came to know Christ. He says in verse 20, You, however, did not come to know Christ this way. Now, the vast majority of us here have come to know Christ. And I wonder, how is it that that happened for you? How was it that you first came to know Christ in your life, if you're a believer here this morning? Paul encourages us as listeners um, to cast back our memories to how this was. And he just points out the obvious to us. There is a commonality between how we all came to know Jesus. I wonder for you, was it through the desires and the endeavors that you'd always known before you knew Jesus? Or perhaps was it through the education that you received? Did you wisely deduct that Jesus was God? Or perhaps there was some hobby or interest or society you're involved in and you all gathered around a particular subject. Is that how you found Jesus? Was it through just giving yourself over to things like drinking and drugs or perhaps working really hard at school or pursuing a career? No, I can say with confidence, can't I? That it was because you met Jesus because the truth about Jesus was brought to you. We can say with confidence that nothing in our old life showed us what the truth about Christ because this is something true and common to us all. And we can see an account of how this happened for many of the people in Ephesus, um, in Acts chapter 19. Now, we'll be visiting there a moment, but 
what happens there. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible, really. Um, And Paul has been teaching in the synagogues, teaching to the Jewish religious people of the time. And uh, they became pretty despondent and weren't really receiving the word that he had. So he went out into the lecture halls of the area, a lecture hall called uh, Tyrannus. And um, he started to begin instead to teach to the ordinary people um, of that town, of that city, and not the religious people. And this was a place, this lecture hall, where normally they'd be debating things about philosophy and new ideas and different thoughts about um, the meaning of life and the purpose for things and trying to discover some sort of truth. And, you know, this was back in a time where they were still in that sort of heyday of philosophy and ideas being exchanged. And they would have been searching for truth and meaning in those things. However, it was not through this endeavor that they did discover Christ. It was through Paul teaching Jesus to them. Verse 21 says, Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is Jesus. Now Paul points out that it was not through their old desires and that old debating that they were involved in that they knew God, but it was because he taught Jesus. And this is where they discovered true relationship with God, Jesus being brought to them. And that is really a foundational point uh, that Paul is making to the rest of this. It's no rocket science, but he's just wanting to hammer home what's blatantly obvious, that you did not come to know Christ through the pursuits of your old life, in the things of this world, but through Jesus being brought to you. And at that point, all of us here who are believers can hear that and emphatically nod and say, yes, this is how we came to know Jesus. That is our experience. Yet, what I want us to look at a little bit now is we can still struggle to translate this simple truth of how we first came to know Christ into how we then continue to live our lives individually and as a church. And it's because of this that Paul brings these words to us um, in verses 22 to 23. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being made corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So having heard the truth and accepted it about Jesus, we then required, it requires that we put off our old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, those old things. What does this look at? What does this look like? What does this in practice look like? Putting off our old self, putting off our old desires. Well, one example we read for these same people in Ephesus who had been heard Paul teaching in those lecture halls, and we can read in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 19. It says here that many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What an amazing scene. These people who've been caught up in sorcery and witchcraft and magical practices and now turn completely and dramatically away from it, burning everything that they're associated with it. And that is something that, if we're not careful, we're in grave danger of in our country, is that lots of people 
become open to Jesus. We can become sympathetic to his teaching. We can say, yeah, you know, there's some good things that Jesus said that can help us in life. It might even be that somebody can encounter something powerful from God, that they can have an experience of God to some extent. And it can also be that we can have an involvement in church activity regularly. We can be around, we can hear about Jesus, but never actually make a 180 degree turn away from living for ourselves and into the joy of serving Jesus. Now when these people heard about it, it wasn't symbolic, their reaction. It was a complete trashing of the old things in a way that they wouldn't get them back. It says here that when they collected together all the things that associated with this sorcery and, uh, and, and magic that they were involved in, uh, that it came to the equivalent of 50,000 drachmas. Now, to put that in context, one drachma was about an average day's work. So we don't know how many of them were exactly, but there was around 50,000 days of work worth of value in this stuff. So these people were seriously invested um, in this practice, but they joyfully just let them burn. And if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're into or how deeply you're into it, you can be brought into new life with God today. So we've seen this example of people putting off this old life as they encounter Jesus for the first time. However, in chapter 4, Paul makes it clear that he's not actually addressing non-believers here, but those, like many of us, people who are already in the flow and the walk of our Christian life. And he's encouraging us not to live like we used to. We love Jesus here, don't we? We have a very real, genuine relationship with God. It's just fantastic, just in the different ways in our worship time this morning, that just, people have just poured out their hearts and just been led by the Spirit um, in, just, in meeting with God and being led by God. And it's genuine and it's real and it's fantastic. Um, but we're also surely, just like me, aware that there's still things that we do and that we act that don't belong to this life that we have now, that are still a part of the old life that we used to live at one time. Lust, greed, gossip any number of things, different for different people. And these things can, at different times and different extents, still play a part in our lives. I remember an example for myself. Um, when I was a, a, a lad in school, you know, I was a Christian, I was, I was in church, I, you know, I, I knew Jesus. Um, but I, took, I still had this habit in school of kind of using humor and wit to put other people down and to kind of make myself look better. Um, as often the pressure can be in school, you want to be associated with the in-crowd, look a bit more superior to others perhaps. Um, and at times I could be pretty cruel and humiliating in my shame um, to other people, getting a joke and a bit of a, a jab at them to make myself look a bit better. Um, I knew Jesus at this time, but that aspect of my life hadn't changed. However, one point in my life, without anybody pointing anything out for me on that occasion, um, none of my family really knew that that's how I was like at school, no one at church that I was involved in, they weren't in my classes, they didn't see it. Um, but God highlighted to me 
uh, that my actions. And it was like all of a sudden, they became clear to me. Um, and nothing in me wanted to do those things anymore. The thought of it actually made me feel quite sick inside when I realized how I was acting and how that was affecting other people. Um, and it suddenly made a dramatic change to what I did and how I dealt with people and the people that I spent my time with. And, you know, it was just this example of, yes, I knew Jesus. Yes, I was walking with him. But, man, I was walking in ways that weren't part of this new life. And God had to highlight that and change that in me. Um, But still now, you know, over ten years on, I'm keenly aware that there's still many things in my life that I need to put down. But we, together here this morning, are part of this wonderful church that God is building, this picture that Paul had been painting before this area, of God's glorious church. So it's important that we do move away from these things in our lives. So how do we, as the Bible instructs us, put off our old selves and and not live in our old ways anymore? Well, if we look carefully at this, read this verse again, you'll notice that after Paul's instruction to put off the old self in verses 22 to 24, um, it's all one sentence. He doesn't stop at that point. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new into the at- in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul doesn't just instruct us to put off the old self, but in the same breath, he continues into putting on the new self. There's no full stop. There's no gap between the two. The two cannot be separated, in fact. We can't move away from old things in our life unless we're moving into the new uh, things that Jesus has for us. Similarly, Similarly, we can't move into those new things if we're not putting the old things behind us. God has saved us through his amazing grace. But that grace cannot stand the vacuum of just putting off the old self. It demands that we take up something new. Now there's a similar verse, almost identical, in the book of Colossians, chapter 3 and 9. I'm just going to read that verse. It's ESV translation here. And it says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now we see again in this example that it's just one sentence. The two are inseparable. The putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new. And if you've got an ESV Bible in front of you, it's got a little uh, footnote on it. And then it just points out that that word self, old self, new self, can be literally translated as the old man and putting on the new man. And this is really important because even though Paul, from this point, is going to run through uh, different examples of things that they should stop doing uh, and things that what Paul's trying to get across is not purely that our actions should change, but that we're putting off the old man. We're putting on the new man. It's a bit like this. If you imagine, perhaps, joining the army and being a civilian and then changing to being in the army and then becoming a soldier. Now, if you do that, your status completely changes. A soldier has to realize that who they now are, this new status, is and affects how they act and that they're a part of something different. And because of that, 
They'll respond to situations differently. When threatening things come to them, if they're attacked in a situation, we here might, you know, ring the police. We might shout for help. We might turn around and run in the opposite direction. But when you're a soldier, when you have committed yourself and signed yourself over to that new thing, you know, you've got to come back and you've got to attack too. You know, you can't act like a civilian when you're in a war situation. You can't. And the things that they do in their new status changes. They now have the right to use fatal force in combat. Um, they have to act in a way that um, is not just for their own desires. You know, they don't just do their day's work uh, and go home and sit in their nice house set up and, you know, I've managed to build my situation up here. No, when you're a soldier, you have to act in response for the good of your country and as part of a unit and as part of a team. No longer can they put their own individual interests first. And it's a complete transformation. It's a change in their situation and their status. And it affects every way that they then act in situations. So in other words, you as an individual are becoming new in your identity. We together are becoming new creations. Why? Because we're part of a, we're a newly created part in a newly created body that God is building. And that is his glorious church. So of course, if we are new creations, and we're part of the very makeup, the very being of this wonderful church that Paul has been painting a picture of, our actions will change in light of this. It's inevitable. They'll be markedly different because we don't belong to this world anymore. Our status has changed. We are those who belong to Christ and stand as his glorious church. In 2 Corinthians 5, um, it's described as, as having an eternal house in heaven. And almost that we groan and we, we have this realization that we don't belong here. You know, it's almost like we're pitched in a tent as we're on this earth. Because as, as God works in us, we begin to realize that actually our citizenship, our dwelling, is not here. It's in heaven. So, going back to that illustration... Us living here in this world, in this new self, this new man that has been created in us. Um, it's a bit like being that trooper who's fully kitted up and your neck is about as wide as your head. And, uh, you know, this is who you are now. Uh, and you're stood like that with your backpack and your gun. Uh, but you're in the queue to the post office to get a parcel weighed, you know. You don't fit in in that situation uh, with the new status and what you belong to. It's almost ridiculous um, because our lifestyles will be dramatically changed. Not because we owe it to God, not because we need to appease God or, you know, there's some kind of angry God who's, who we've got to make sure we're not upsetting every point in the way and we've got to watch how we act, but because we belong to God. It's true. It's the reality of who we now are as an individual and collectively as a church. We're representing God on display to this world. And God's church stands out differently to anything in this world. We stand out differently to anything in this world. You will stand out differently to anything in this world. 
So as Paul says, put off the old self and its old ways and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And he's made this point for us. And now he just goes through some specific examples and we'll just visit um, a few of them. So uh, verses 25 uh, to 28 in Ephesians 4 again. It says, Therefore, Each of you must put off the falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So just pulling out one of these examples here, Paul refers to somebody who has been a thief, who has been stealing things. Um... And how God's, yes, he must stop stealing. However, it can't stop there. God's transforming grace just doesn't work like that. You see, because our God is not the God of refrain. He's not the God of prudence. But he's a God of transformation. And transformation for a purpose. Yes, the thief must now stop stealing and work to earn. But it doesn't stop there. He shouldn't just do this thing. He shouldn't just stop working so that he's not going to steal anymore. But it goes on to say that so he can give to those in need. Wow, what a transformation. God brought us out of sin and death. Yes, the old has gone. But also don't forget, there's come something new. There is a dramatic change in the way we act and it's in the very core of who we are. And the list goes on of examples. Verse 29 through down to 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. But instead, he's saying, be kind and compassionate to, the, to one another, forgiving each other just as God forgave you. But as we look at these kind of specific directions, these specific examples, there is always this temptation to hear um, that what I should be doing is listening to this list of do nots um, and taking them on board. But no, we must, we must fight against this in our lives. And when we read these things and when we hear these corrections, um, because each one of them, as we look through them, yes, we've said the, the guy who steals must now give. Um, it talks about Um, not living in falsehood, but swapping that for speaking truthfully to one another so that you will build up the body. There's all different examples where it's not a standalone set of um, do-nots. I'm sure, like me, yes, you can identify these things in your life, still now, as we read them. But as we've seen, it's not just about stopping these things. It's about becoming something new. We know there's lots of things that we do and that they crop up in our lives. And the danger is that we can then think, well, it's all well and good saying these things, but in my everyday life, in my real experience, it's just not that straightforward. It's much more difficult, it's much more complicated than that. And I'm not trying to say that it is. I'm not trying to say that these things aren't sometimes difficult to work through. For me to be able to come and stand here and say that would be glib, It will be unreal. However, we can 
have confidence that we will experience change because God is in control. God, who is in control of these things. And this transformation that is being um, endorsed to us here, that is being made plain to us, is actually, if you're a believer here, a train that you're already on. Because as we cast our minds back to how we came to know Jesus, it was Jesus who is the one who established this salvation, and likewise, he is the one who's going to continue it. Like we've heard already in other messages, this kind of example of the master craftsman working on our lives. And our confidence is in him, that he will work in us, completing the work that he has created until it is perfected in us. So, looking at this now, how we can experience this transformation just in a more succinct way. Well, firstly, we experience change primarily because it's God who is doing the work. He is the one who's working in us. And secondly, we can experience change by knowing the truth. Jesus said, he was talking to some of the uh, religious people, uh, debating with them, and he says in John chapter 8, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it's a reality that as we increasingly discover and become to know something of the true nature of our citizenship that is in God's kingdom and that our appetite, our very nature, is being and has been transformed, as it's put in 2 Corinthians, that we are a new creation and the old has gone and the new has come, we get an assurance that even despite the complexities, the difficulties, the stresses and the realities of the situations we face in life, we can be confident that God is achieving this transformation in our lives. And thirdly, we can experience this change through the power of God's Spirit in us. And I believe that it's no coincidence that as Paul lists these different ways in which we are to put off the old way of living and take on the new, he ends up with this final example in chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We've looked at how it's just not about um, changing, but we look at this verse here, and, and Paul's talking about putting off the old, which is drunkenness, and putting on the new, which is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about drinking um, and getting drunk and being involved in that, it's, we can look at our heads and look at the students, perhaps, amongst us, um, because more visually, these guys, you, you know, you seem to be perhaps in that culture and out. And when we're all driving home to go to bed after core group, when we go through town, we see, you know, all the students in town going from bar to bar. Um, but the truth is um, that this drinking culture is something that's ingrained in our country, isn't it? Um, through and through. Um, and it doesn't, it isn't just restricted to students. Um, actually, you know, the working man. Uh, the professional, the managerial, are in fact perhaps where it's more evident. Uh, government statistics taken last year, they say that people classed in the title of managerial and professional are typically those who consume the most units of alcohol in a week. It says about older people, and perhaps older guys amongst us, maybe you can see this in your peers, that actually this, this classification of people 
are the most likely to be drinking on a regular, perhaps daily basis. Uh, 16 to 24 year olds, uh, again, you know, samples show that the most kind of heaviest drinking that takes part in people's lives of 16 to 24 year olds are in places, social places, busy places, gathered um, together. Um, you know, it shows its way in all different aspects of our culture across all ages. And us here, we have come out of and we exist amongst a culture that has getting drunk engraved into it. Um, however, we as a church here have ingrained to us, in us as a new creation, as God's church, we are ingrained with the fact that we are continually filled with his Holy Spirit. We are new creations and we're enjoying this new way of living. And I don't think it's trite to say that the professional who once enjoyed a bottle of wine on his own at night to de-stress can come to God and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The older person who might spend their time from day to day passing it with having a drink can come and know God's filling of the Spirit on a daily basis. And young people, instead of getting together to get drunk... I'm not saying drinking is always wrong, you know, I'll buy a drink. But they can exchange that in lively enjoyment together, radically participating in God's Holy Spirit, infilling amongst us as a group. And we as a church are to be distinctive from this culture that we know amongst us. That's the exchange that we've inherited. We can put off the old ways of drunkenness and we can put on the new we can know the new wine in our lives. We can experience this continual filling of God's Holy Spirit. So we need to remember, we need to cast our minds back. That yes, we came to know, we came into this relationship because we discovered the truth of Jesus. And yes, we're putting off our old ways of living. But if we leave it there, we're going to be continually frustrated. We're not going to enjoy being part of the church because God has something new for us today. God wants us to embrace this transformation that he's doing in our life. What is it that you need to come out of? Is God highlighting any things in your life that you need to move out of? But also, very importantly, what is it that God's moving you into? What new things has God got for you? What has he got for you this morning? God's been, we've been hearing these words about God's power and authority in this world and how that rules over all things. Well, that God is here with us this morning. He's here. He's here in his spirit. And he wants to put, I believe he wants to give us new things today. His Holy Spirit wants to come and work in us. And we can respond to some of the old things um, that we once did, and we can move out of them, and we can take on glorious new things that belong to our, our new life through God's Holy Spirit with us. Now, I'm just going to ask to help me out here. I've got a little clip. Uh, you get points if you recognize what film it's from, but I just want to finish with this um, before we respond. Because I just believe that out of this silly statement, God wants to just bring something uh, prophetic. I believe he just wants to speak to us through it. So... Uh, if you could just play it for me now, sir. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. 
Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. The film. Yes, going back a bit. Some of the younger guys probably don't know that. But there's this, this bit where, basically, if you've not seen the film, uh, this guy, uh, Crocodile Dundee, he's like an uh, Australian guy from the outback. He's a bit like Steve Irwin or something like that. You know, he's used to being out in the bush hunting things um, out in the wilderness. And he's, the, the story of the film goes that he's now in a completely different situation. He's in the city. He's in an urban environment, and he sticks out like a sore thumb. And that clip I've just shown you there, it's perhaps the most quoted part of that film. Um, he's out with the, this woman, and they, this guy comes to mug them, and he pulls out this little uh, switchblade and uh, is after his wallet. And uh, Crocodile Dundee, just like seeing the small blade that he's threatening them with, is just not faced by the situation at all. And he famously says, that's not a knife. And then pulls out this giant dagger that's ten times the size of the other guy's, guy's knife and says, that's a knife. And then cuts his shirt and the guy runs off. <laughs> and it's just amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah, we heard that voice. God doesn't have an Australian accent. It was a clip. Um, and, you know, what I think God wants to say to us today is that Let's not walk around with these small little knives that we once knew and with our old lives. But actually, God wants to exchange something much bigger. He wants to give us a big knife. And sometimes we can be content with living with the things that we have. And God's saying, nah, that's not a knife. <laughs> that's not the new life that I've given you. I've got something for you much more powerful to wield here. I've got something much stronger. And come, it's here for you. Let's put those things down. Let's exchange them for something much better. God's got a bigger knife for us. Let's have the band up. Let's worship. And then let's just uh, respond to what God's wanting to do.